You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. This hour, we continue our Women of Faith series where we're talking with women who are energized and activated by some of our most urgent spiritual and philosophical questions of the day. You can find my conversations with Sister Simone Campbell, Nadia Bowles-Weber, and last week, Sekuvu Hutchinson and Rebecca Watson, two guests who talked about their approach to atheism. Here's Rebecca. I fervently believe that if there is no afterlife, then we need to do everything we can to stop people from being marginalized. We need universal health care. We need feminism. We need Black Lives Matter. You know, all of these things tie into my understanding that this is literally all we've got. Today, the rich diversity in the identity of Muslim American women. And here's some things to know for the conversation. Muslim Americans are young. Almost half are millennials under the age of 35. Many were born here from parents who arrived in the late 90s or early 2000s. And these young women Muslims are influencing their schools and their communities, athletics, politics, even their parents. Our guest lives that every day. Janan Mohajir believes we can energize this up-and-coming generation of young Americans to embrace the idea of an interfaith America. So we're going to talk about how that looks. We'll also talk about how Janan got there. And as she joins us, I wonder how much interfaith work your faith community does. And here's the more interesting conversation and question, I think. How do you think it would change who we are as Americans if the interfaith ideal really flourished? So maybe you look within your own faith community and talk to me this morning about how you reach out and interact and live with other members of other faith communities. But I think this is the more interesting and maybe more philosophical question here. How do you think it would change who we are as Americans if the interfaith ideal really flourish. Now, I'd love to hear from some of our young listeners as well, because as I said, a lot of Muslim Americans are millennials, a lot of the the new generation who's very interested in this idea of interfaith is young. So talk to me about how this works in your own faith community. Talk to me about that ideal of an interfaith America, how it looks for you. 651-227-6000. 800-242-2828 on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Janan Mohajir oversees strategy and development of the interfaith curriculum at Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago. And she's someone that I've turned to often for her perspective on the experience of Muslim American women. So Janan, welcome to the show. And I'm really grateful you were game to, to have a conversation with me about this. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. Good. So one of the purposes of the series is to say that women are rewriting the stories of their lives and their work in faith communities. And I think even with some of those numbers that I gave in the introduction, you can you can tell that Muslim women in America are the role models for this. Now, I'm curious about whether that's out of necessity because the cultural definition isn't very informed are we going beyond that? Where are we at on this right now? 
I think Muslim women are in, on the forefront of many different conversations, both within the Muslim community and also in the broader American community. And we're really seeing that come through in the conversations that are happening nationally. Um, at the Interfaith Youth Corps, for example, we have a number of different voices at the forefront. Um, our founder, uh, Dr. Ibu Patel, who is not a woman, but is has been leading our organization, has really uplifted a lot of female voices in this uh, movement of interfaith work. Um, I myself have been there for 12 years, and I've really been lucky to see a lot of women rise to, to the leadership that we need right now. We see that um, personally, you know, you have heard the story from me before um, in the many alumni coming out of Interfaith Youth or to name one, you know, there's an organization called America Indivisible that is a new organization that is up and coming, mm-hmm. uh, being led by uh, a woman named Yusra Ghazi, who is a close friend of mine, who is really thinking about how do we bridge political difference between Muslims and their neighbors in the current context of the United States where we are extremely polarized. Um, there's another woman by the name of Nadia Mohajer, who is the founder of Heart Women and Girls, who's leading an entirely different conversation around women's rights, around the age agency of reproductive rights that women have, both within the Muslim community and outside of the Muslim community. And those are two very different examples of how women are really stepping up to lead in a time of deep polarization in our country. You know, this is why I I asked you about kind of the, the cultural definition of what it means to be a Muslim woman in America, whether it is just simply the necessity to re- redefine what that is because so much of what the culture says about it doesn't get it right. Is that still true? I'm not sure how to answer that question. I would say that there's obviously a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about who Muslim women are. And I think that now the stories that we're hearing now are breaking some of those stereotypes and are really pushing the boundaries and asking people to look beyond their own narrative that they have told about Muslim women. So for me, the exciting part of this time is that Muslim women are reclaiming their own narrative and they're really telling their own stories, which is what we need to center. And, and you know, Muslim women have always been leaders within the community and And um, one sort of historical story that I like to look back at um, is the story of Hagar, who is um, the, for Muslims, she's the second wife of Abraham. Um, She's a black woman who is former, who's a former slave and the mother of Ishmael. And there's a moment in the story of Hagar when uh, Abraham walks her into the desert in in Saudi Arabia and, you know, leaves her there on God's command. And in that moment, Hagar kind of turns to him and says, you know, are you leaving me here because you're you're just leaving me here or are you leaving me here because God commanded you to do so and in that moment really you know she claims her agency as a mother as um, a woman who is you know independent and claims her agency again in, in that moment and says you know if this is from God then I don't need you and I'm going to to facilitate for myself and I'm going to provide for my son on my own and what she does is she runs between you know these two mountains that are in Mecca that Muslims go back and forth between in every pilgrimage that they do they're called Safa and Marwa and and she's invoking God's help and mercy as she's running between these mountains looking for help because she needs to feed her son and god provides for her by by with a spring that erupts you know between these mountains my daughter is actually named marwa and and she's named that because 
of this story and this anchor um, of Hagar, who is really this iconic Muslim woman who claims her agency and her independence and, and you know, rises in a time of need as the leader that she needs to be for her child and her community. Yeah, You know what's interesting about that story, though? I mean, the expectations and the culture of the era – uh, kind of laid one vision on what it meant to be a woman of that time. I mean, th- there's a lot of relevance. I-, I see this to what we're talking about this morning that goes back to the sacred texts on this, you know, for how women lived then. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of that in the narrative that, you know, that shows us what the context was for different times and how even in those contexts, women emerged as leaders and and unlikely um, you know, standard barriers for what needed to happen in that community and set those narratives. Right. Um, and it's important for me as a mother to really call upon that. So um, a funny story in our house is, you know, our our five-year-old was going to Islamic school, uh, like a religious weekend school a couple of years ago, and was learning about the story of, of Abraham and Ishmael. And um, I noticed that in his narration of the story, you know, Hagar wasn't a very big factor because <laughs> of how he was being taught that story. Story. And, you know, we taught him that and we we encouraged him to share that with his class. And those are those are battles that women face every day. And at the same time, we also have to claim that narrative and claim that leadership as we need to. Call here from Julie in St. Cloud. Hi, Julie. Glad Hi. You called. Hi. How are you thinking about this today? Um, well, what I'm thinking about is I'd love to see some sort of, you know, interfaith and um um, just embracing positive parts of all religions across all, our culture, um, since there are so many problems with different religions. Mm-hmm. But when I find, um, particularly when looking at the Muslim religion, so many of their practices and what they condone um, are considered almost inhumanitarian in our society. Um, for instance, a lot of Muslim women are circumcised at age uh, 12 or even 13, and that does still occur in the United States under a Muslim law or under a Muslim religion, which is exempt by American law. So there's a lot of contradictions between what Americans would consider humanitarian and the practices of the Muslim religion. It's just being one example, of course. So I so, think in order, um, you know, for everyone to embrace each other, someone's going to have to give up something. Like, is America law going to say, okay, religion trumps um, the American society values? Or are Muslims going to say, we understand what you value, and we're going to adjust our religion to accommodate that? I, and, Janana, I know this is this is the kind of work that you do. Probably what Julie has brought up here is at the heart of, of a lot of the work that you're doing, trying to understand uh, traditions and principles of Islam and how they translate to today's contemporary Muslims. How do you... How do you inform and and um, and really, I guess, educate people about what it stands for today? So that was a really complicated question. So I'm going to try to answer that piece by piece. Okay. Um, first of all, I think that to kind of blanket and the entire Muslim community and to to think that. Muslim women are circumcised at mass is actually a really unfortunate stereotype. There is a 
contingent within the Muslim community. There are a group of people within the Muslim community for whom female circumcision is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. And there is a huge amount of work happening um, on the account, both here in the United States, but also in other countries where people are battling this misconception that female circumcision is something that is mandated by Muslim law. Majority of Muslims who live in the United States do not experience that. I certainly do not experience that. I don't know anybody else who's experienced that. So I think that is also an indication of how, unfortunately, stereotypes against Muslims and asking for Muslims to be accountable for a minority um, opinion within their tradition can be harmful in inviting people into interfaith dialogue. It's really important for us to be self-educating and to be learning about the other, to be learning about Muslims and other folks who are living in our community before we go out and actually ask for them to be changing their own tradition. That being said, I think what we do at the Interfaith Youth Corps is really based around this framework of what we call the Interfaith Triangle. The Interfaith Triangle has three parts. It, there's there's three parts to it. There's knowledge, there's attitudes, and there's relationships. And the way that it works is if you strengthen one part of that triangle, then it reinforces the other two. So what do I mean by that? If you take a class in which you're learning about a different religious tradition, a different religious community, not only do you gain knowledge about that community, but you also, your attitude towards that community also shifts, and you are also more likely to then build relationships with someone in that community. Similarly, if you meet someone who is Muslim or otherwise or from a different community than yourself and you build a relationship with them through that conversation and that dialogue and that relationship, your attitudes can shift and your knowledge can increase. So that interfaith triangle is really the framework that we use at the Interfaith Youth Corps with which we ask people to really think about what kind of interfaith engagement are they doing? How are they meeting their neighbors? How are they showing grace in those conversations? How are they checking their own biases? How are they making sure that the information that they have received about a community, whether from the news or otherwise, is accurate and is how that community actually explains themselves or identifies themselves. You know, Janan, I, I just I would just want to say this, that, that Julie's question with a lot of, I think, some misinformation in her query, but I'm also going to accept that it, there was genuine uh, interest there, brought us to a place that I didn't think I was going to get till till later in the show. But I, I want to talk about this because you've addressed it. I was reading something interesting in The Atlantic uh, uh, from a few years ago, and the writer was interviewing a young Muslim student leader at Columbia University, and she said that it was really exhausting to have to carry the burden of doing a lot of education. And, and this is what she said in the in the piece. No matter what we do, we're always left in the weaker position, always reacting instead of paving our own way. Why do we always have to wait to have our hurt acknowledged? Why do we always have to step back and accept that our lives aren't valued in this world? Muslims are always at the back of the line for that compassion. And I feel like we plunged you quickly into that, but I'd <laughs> I, I, I'd love to know how you think about that, because I know that's a key part of the work that you're doing. And maybe you have to do it again and again. Yeah, and I, I think I'll be, to be a bit vulnerable in this moment, I'll say sometimes it does feel like a very heavy mantle. Sometimes it does feel like um, it's a cyclical process where we're continuing to say the same 
things that we have said for many years as a community to educate and to, you know, to to open ourselves up for people to come learn about us. And at the same time, I see that as essentially necessary, right? So for me, it's really important for me to claim my own story and for me to tell my own story in a way that's authentic, in a way that's true to the way that I practice Islam, in a way that's true to the way that I live out my Islam. And that sometimes can feel exhausting in moments and sometimes, and or not sometimes, and always is necessary for me personally to do. I often tell people, you know, there's a interfaith work gets a bad rep oftentimes <laughs> to be like, you know, uh, the very like touchy feely right. sort of right. good to feel thing that you do. I actually think interfaith work is incredibly it's difficult. Hard, right? It's yeah. incredibly challenging to have very vulnerable, very hard conversations across people who really disagree with you. It's easy to have a conversation with someone who maybe disagrees with you a little bit, but mostly shares your values on a number of different things. And Real interfaith work that bridges some of those really deep, difficult differences is actually very challenging to do. And I would say that I have personally chosen a path to do that. So I'm committed to that conversation, even if it feels like a heavy mantle sometimes. Good, good. If you've just gotten in on the conversation, Janan Mohajir is with us, and um, she's our guest, our newest guest in our Women of Faith series. And we're talking about um, the diversity of Muslim women in America, uh, I, I noted at the beginning, Muslim Americans are young, almost half are millennials under the age of 35. Many were born here having influence in so many parts of American life. And this is getting to the work that Janan does. She works for Interfaith Youth Corps. You hear in the title, Committed to This Idea of Interfaith, and you just heard her say, this is not just showing up and going, let's just love each other and moving on. It's the hard, nitty-gritty work of interfaith, which is why I'm asking you this morning how much interfaith work you do or your faith community does, and how do you think it would change who we are as Americans if the interfaith ideal really flourished? Can you define that? How does that look? 651 227 800-242-2828, wherever you are in the region, and then on Twitter at Carrie NPR. Interesting tweet here from Andy who says, I'm all for interfaith in principle, and I believe it holds great promise. You knew there was a but coming here, Janan. But my <laughs> question is, how can one reach out across faiths and still maintain a strong conviction within one's own. This is another bad rap that interfaith gets, right? Somehow you're weak in your own faith if you're willing to be receptive and open to someone else's. That's exactly right. And actually, I would say research shows otherwise, right? So actually, if you look at um, Interfaith Youth Corps runs this project called the Ideal Research Project, which is uh, basically running um, a survey of 122 campuses. And some of our reports that are early on have come out have actually shown that engaging in interfaith dialogue strengthens our own convictions and strengthens our own worldview identity Why? and our own religious identity. Why do you think that and is? And I think it's because when we encounter difference, we have to figure out a way to, you know, to talk about who we are in that moment, too. Mm. So just to give you a personal story for me, when I was starting college now many years ago, um, one of the things that brought me to my Catholic university was that 
I was really committed to doing um, education reform, and I, I was trained as a teacher. I wanted to do um, a lot of work in the failing schools in the inner city of Chicago. So one of the things that I did as a student is I signed up to do this tutoring program that took a bunch of DePaul students who were all education majors into the inner city. And I noticed that on the bus ride back, we would all be talking about why we were committed to that hmm. space. Mm-hmm. And in the on the bus, you know, my the friend sitting next to me was was somebody who was a Hindu who was you know was her parents were from India, some, similar to my own. Another friend who was next to me was Jewish. Another person next to me was an atheist. And we were all kind of having this conversation about why we were committed to this program and committed to, as college students, spending, you know, two afternoons a week, which is a lot of time for a college student to spend outside of their social life and their academic life, dedicated to this program. And at the time, I wasn't a particularly religious person. At the time, I didn't pray. I didn't cover my hair. I didn't outwardly necessarily identify as Muslim very strongly. I was a cultural Muslim. I wore the clothes on holidays and ate the food and did all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it was really those conversations that brought me back to the the question of why am I committed to that space? What brings me into a space of service? What brings me into a place of community? And it brought me back to Islam in a way that was much stronger than before and in a way that really... Um, found like brought my identity my muslim identity to the foundation of my faith because i was asking those questions in that very diverse setting and looking for those answers and i found them in my own tradition you know what what you're describing i think is the hallmark of all high quality either argument debate discussion can you test your own thinking right can you bring your highest quality argument to a debate, I don't know, about politics or or whatever, first you have to be able to do that to be articulate and and I think really in touch with what you think and why you think that. You've kind of described that in the in the faith realm. I would say it's that and it's the fact that we have to build meaningful, deep relationships and we have to be familiar with each other's story. It's very easy to disagree with someone when you don't know who they are, when you don't know where they came from, when you don't know what their struggles are. And it's very easy to paint someone in broad negative strokes when all you know of them comes from, you know, either a TV news channel or from an op-ed that someone wrote. But when you actually break out of your own comfort zone and build relationships with someone who are who is vastly different than you and you know that might be hard there may be hiccups along the way they may be difficult conversations you might offend one another and you might have to figure that out but that's those relationships is is really for me the foundation of how we can move past some of that that really deep um, misunderstanding of each other and it's really centering each other's authentic stories that will help us really see who we are. Call here from Mark in St. Paul. Hey, Mark. Hi. Glad you called. How are you doing? Uh, I have made a friendship at uh, our agency. Mm -hmm. It started with, uh, I believe, that morning when our president called uh, African countries. uh, Yes. Blank. Yes, we got it. We remember. And so... I stepped in and I turned to Fatima and I said, not all of us feel that way. And I felt like I needed to at least say something to her. I didn't know her at that point. And then we, a year ago or so, started this diversity and inclusion committee at our agency where one of our first steps was to 
take someone out for lunch and just to know them, get to understand. And that's one of the triangle, the relationship that you mentioned. And then the second is attitude. And so my attitude, I think, shifted when I was in the hallway and a loved one had died. And she said, oh, Mark, I'll pray for you. And I I think that may have been uh, the bridge that has carried our relationship forward. But it was also, I brought in food from our family, and then she took me out for lunch with their, uh, with their food as well. So that's more of a statement, not much of a question, but just to, I guess, uh, reinvigorate, starting with relationships and then trying to move on with an attitude that is more open and embracing. You know what? what's interesting, Mark? I can imagine you in the elevator that day you know, kind of double-checking yourself. Well, if I say that, is she going to think I'm... But I feel like I need to say something. Right? I, I think a lot of that, the beginning of the knowing each other's stories, kind of starts with, I don't know, shyness, or it would just be easier if, you know, if I didn't say this. It's brave <laughs> to step out and do what you did. What, what do you hear in that, Janan? I think Mark's story is so is so remarkable and also so accessible in some ways, right? So um, what I think is really interesting about what he said is it took an incredible amount of um, courage and and also and and some vulnerability to right. put you know right. to to reach out and to to bridge some of that relationship initially, but not, you know, Mark and Fatima could have stopped right there and it could have just been about them. But what they also did is is decided, you know, we need to expand this to our company. We need to think about this for our entire, you know, community here um, that we spend our workday with and really think about, let's start this initiative of diversity inclusion um, so that people can get to know one another and spend time building some of those relationships. And that's actually quite remarkable to think about not just personal relationships, but how those personal relationships can build and groundswell into a more communal uh, space and a space where many people can then participate and also, you know, bring their own contributions. Dr. Ibu Patel, who's our founder, recently wrote a book called Of Many Faiths that came out now about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about how, you know, what if America were a potluck nation instead of a melting pot? And really thinking about, you know, having a, a table where everyone is invited to bring their own dish and to bring their own story and to be sharing in that instead of trying to to put everything together and to make one dish. And I find that to be a really beautiful metaphor in the way that we can think about interfaith work in America moving forward. That's a really, that's a great way to put it. Janelle, we have so many people on the phone lines. I'm going to go right back to the phones if you're good with that. Sure. Okay, to John in Minneapolis. Hi, John. Thanks for waiting through the news break. Really appreciate it. No problem. Hey, I just want to make the point about... 60 million people live in rural America. I come from rural Iowa, and I can say that there's a huge ecumenical movement uh, in the Christian community that's in, since I was born in 81, is extraordinary, where, you know, the Catholic choir will sing at the Lutheran church on Christmas Eve, and then the Lutheran choir will run over and sing with the Catholics on Christmas Eve, and everyone thinks we've made huge strides. (laughs) But when talking about interfaith, um, especially in rural America— there are not representatives that I've ever that I would know of. One guy maybe that's Jewish uh, in a community close to us, but as far as like the Muslim faith, 
I don't know of anybody. And, you know, they make a push for the Hispanic population in rural Iowa because that's mo- they're mostly Christian. And so there's a huge push to bring them into the fold uh, of a mostly white church. But I'm wondering what your guest might say to a sustained effort to engage maybe in conversation in forums where you bring uh, 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 maybe more educated members like, like your guest to a rural community yeah. and engage proactively over a long period of time, not just a one-off, yeah. but like to continually come in and educate, because that would be whole, a whole lot better than Sean Hannity just ramming home. Uh, you know, discursive language about about other people. Yeah, John, this is really good. I'm really glad to call it. Janan, this is probably something you're you guys are strategizing about and talking about at the Interfaith Youth Corps, aren't you? How, How are you getting it done? Yeah, a lot of our work at the Interfaith Youth Corps happens at the college campus. So we we are focused very much on higher education, and our work is primarily working with universities, uh, both faculty, staff, and students at various universities around the country. And certainly there are, you know, we have uh, many university campuses who are, you know, in more rural spaces rather than urban spaces. I would actually say, you know, there is there. There are different outfits who are also thinking about bridging some of the divide between the rural and the urban gap. So there's a a great organization by the name of Center for Rural Strategies. Um, I have a friend who is there. Her name is Whitney Kimball Coe. She actually was at the Interfaith Youth Corps' yearly event last year, really thinking about this intersection between rural spaces and interfaith work and what that looks like. And, you know, they are it's really interesting to think about how do we both like tell stories of rural spaces in urban spaces to actually push back on the myth and the and some of the stereotypes that we hold as people who live in cities around folks who live in more rural areas and also how do we put those those two populations in conversation with one another and really think about you know having them interact with each other through story or through, you know, interpersonal relationships. I am more than happy to go speak to a community if someone would like to invite me. Oh, so I will plug right. that as as an open invitation for someone who's interested. Um, and also, you know, we at the Interfaith Youth Corps, we have a really rich uh, bureau of alumni speakers who constantly get invitations from spaces that are not... Um, only universities, but also, you know, faith institutions and community centers, etc. And we're happy to connect people to those kinds of dialogue spaces if that is something that people are looking for. Back to the phones here to Tim in Minneapolis. Is this uh, Tim Hart Anderson from Westminster? It is, Hi, yes. Tim. Yes, so glad is. you heard the show uh, and you called in. What, what are you thinking about? Well, first of all, I think Ibu Patel and uh, Interfaith Youth Corps terrific. Uh, we've had Ibu speak at, a, at the Town Hall Forum here at Westminster, and our daughter was, uh, when she was younger, was part of the Interfaith Youth Corps, so it's, I'm glad you're, you're focusing on this topic. Uh, Westminster is deeply engaged in interfaith work, uh, and what we have found, uh, as we've dealt with um, and learned from partners in other traditions, is that it actually strengthens our own sense of who we are as Christians. I just completed a dialogue series in the season of Lent with uh, I had a Hindu in the pulpit with me, um, a Muslim, uh, a Jewish a rabbi, and rather than kind of confuse our ourselves, we have found ourselves to be more clear about what it is we believe and where we stand. Our, our interfaith partners need us to be the best, in our case, and the best Christians we can be. So it, it, as we engage, paradoxically, as we engage in these dialogues, we don't 
we don't water down our convictions or our traditions. We actually clarify them, which we found to be very helpful. Tim, I'm curious about how you prepared to share the pulpit with with uh, people from other faiths, and and then what the experience of the congregation was. I mean, what what were you really looking to communicate? Uh, you're right, Carrie, that you do have to prepare for these things. First of all, I have relationships with the people with whom I'm in dialogue publicly like this. I've, for 20 years, I've been having breakfast once a month with uh, an interfaith group of clergy. So mm-hmm. relationship is key. Uh, our, this particular dialogue series was on the end of life. So oh. Uh, we we got together and we talked about what how a Muslim views uh, the end of life, how, what an Imam teaches about it, what happens when a death happens uh, in in the Muslim congregation or a Jewish congregation or in the Hindu mm-hmm. temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually rehearsed the dialogue, but it's it's always um, spontaneous when we get in front of the congregation. And I learn every time uh, from these conversations. And our, the congregation is so grateful for the kind of respectful engagement with people of other traditions. It helps them, it models for them, I think, how to uh, approach people of other traditions in their everyday lives. I, I guess that's really the challenge, though, isn't it? Um, to see that kind of discussion going on uh, in the pulpit, in the church, and then how it gets carried out into, you know, real-life, everyday conversations and interactions. Mm-hmm. Well, every one of us in the, in this world, whether we're in rural America or in the in the city like Minneapolis or St. Paul, every one of us has the opportunity to have these kind of dialogues. If we just turn to our neighbor and invite them to coffee or invite them into a conversation, and we'll discover that people of other traditions are, first of all, people, and we're all in the human family. And so what we discover in this dialogue with people of other traditions about death is that uh, every one of our traditions uh, has, uh, in one way or another, has resolved uh, what happens after death in mm. some kind of uh, view of afterlife, whether you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Christian or uh, other traditions. Um, life ends and, and there's there's more. And, and uh, is and there was, more commonality, do you think, be, between, yes. yeah, than, yes. than we would think? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and for us as Christians, uh, you know, we, we of course, claim Jesus as our, the one whom we worship and follow, but Jesus was called in the Gospels the Son of Man or the Son of Humankind, that is, um, the Son of the whole human family. Our, our faith as Christians calls us to um, be as wide open in, in our understanding of God's grace and the mercy of God, which is broader and deeper than that we can ever comprehend. So these interfaith conversations only serve to help us define our own our own tradition and our own convictions. Yeah. Janan, uh, I just want to give you a chance to uh, say something to Tim before we take some other calls. Yeah, I'm really grateful for the work that Tim is doing. And I think that's a really great example of how people in leadership like himself can really set the tone for their communities to actually make something that seems difficult to do very accessible and very um, easy to to embark upon and to make that vulnerability, to show that vulnerability and leadership from the pulpit is really important to then activate your congregants and the people who are in your community to then take on that leadership themselves. Tim, thanks so much for calling. Glad you heard the show. Thank you. Thank Uh, you for what you're doing. uh, Jody says on Twitter, my UCC denomination is very involved in ecumenical work, which is appealing to me. 
to the caller who brought up FGM and Islam, and that was our first call. Uh, I hope she will find it helpful to think about how Christianity was used to justify slavery. They are both examples of an outdated misuse of the religion. To Jonathan in St. Cloud. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for calling. Hi. Uh, thanks for having this conversation this morning. This has been absolutely wonderful listening to it. Good. What do you want to add? Okay. Well, um, I'm actually um, a Muslim revert. Uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal family, and I became Muslim uh, later on uh, during my college years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was actually the vice president of the Muslim Student Association um, at Mississippi State University. Interesting. Interesting work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You're um, in the Bible Belt there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, interfaith dialogue is is a very difficult thing. Uh, Later on, I became uh, the cultural officer of the MSA, and I worked with uh, students ranging from 44 different countries. Um, I, you know, worked under people from Nigeria, uh, from um, all places uh, of Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And um, I do have to say about the FGM, hopefully we could put this one to bed, that is a cultural thing, not a religion thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't find this uh um, anywhere in Southeast Asia or in Asia or in most of the Middle East. I mean, it's kind of sad that uh, that's one thing that even I was questioned about. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, at MSU. Um, and, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, misconceptions um, that we deal with uh, when I was working um, at MSU. Um, hey, Jonathan, I, I, I just, if I might, I just, because we're a little tight on time, I, I want to give Janan a chance. I'm curious about what you've both experienced is the most challenging thing of doing the kind of work you've done on college campuses. So, J- Jonathan, for you, what, what what was the thing you'd single out as, I wrestled with this, you know, the whole time I was involved with this kind of work, this interfaith work? Just doing the religious conversation um between you know the different faiths um that was that was almost impossible to get the people in the bible belt to uh see you know how where we're coming from so what we did was we forced ourselves out there we uh um had our own habitat for humanity house that we would work on um we uh, uh did soup kitchens uh for poor and the homeless um we would uh, run 5K events um, in uniform and and in stride with one another. And I felt like we had to lead by example. Janan, does that reflect your experience on college campuses? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really grateful for Jonathan's call. And I think there's, there's a couple of really important things that I'm hearing him say that reflect my own experience and also um, some interesting themes to re- remember. And that one of the things that I really want to pull out of what Jonathan is talking about is, is how diverse the Muslim American community actually is. And, um, how culturally diverse it is. And the thing that kind of holds us together is is our religious identity, which um, for many people is very much related to their cultural identity as well. So, um, you know, majority of Muslims in America, uh, actually, the Muslim American community in America, if you look at some of the Pew polls, etc., that have done some research on it, show that the diversity is, uh, is so rich that there's no overwhelmingly dominant ethnic group that is Muslim. Everyone is sort of 
you know, in in the same range. The most amount of Muslim Americans in the United States are actually African American, and they are you know indigenous to America. They they their ancestors were brought here against their will on slave ships, and they actually have a very authentic American Muslim experience. And their experience is very different from the communities of immigrants from South Asia, Southeast Asia, from the Middle East, who perhaps came a little bit later and are you know of first and second generation, um, like myself. And that difference actually is something um, that makes our our religion and our community very rich and very diverse. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to pin something down as a iconic Muslim American experience, as a singular experience, when there's actually a lot of diversity and a lot of richness. So I just want to encourage people to think about um, Muslims in in the same way that you would think about the Christian community in America to be very rich and diverse and, you know, representing various different cultural um, and ethnic backgrounds as well. Having said that, I would say, you know, I'm going to answer your question with two stories, Carrie, and, and you tell me if this if this kind of gets at the point that okay. you're talking about. Yeah. The, when I was a relatively new staffer at Interfaith Youth Corps, this is now, you know, 10, 11 years ago, I found myself on various campuses running trainings, doing talks, you know, uh, training young people to do this work on campus. And I would often find myself in one of two situations, right? One situation, this is an example, I was... Um, on a campus in the South doing a talk around Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. King and, and the different ways that the, that King was inspired by Gandhi's work in India. And the per, the grad student who was kind of showing me around campus uh, at the end of the night sort of pulled me aside. You know, he was, uh, he was a Christian. He was a white man. He told me that he had recently come out to his family as, as, um, an, as a gay man, as, mm-hmm. as someone who identified with LGBTQI um, sexual identity. And he, you know, was questioning his uh, ability to stay Christian and questioning whether there was a place for him in his church because of the difficulty that he had faced in that moment. And it was really interesting for me as a as a Muslim woman to be in that moment his resource and to be the person who was mm. like, you know, here are some places that you should go to right. to find that community. Here are some people that you should talk to to find that community. And that, you know, th- that is not my area of expertise, nor is it my <laughs> experience to, to, to be showing him that. But I think that's part of what interfaith work does is that it allows people these moments of vulnerability. And what we need to do in those moments is really be resources to one another and to center the 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 story of the person that's being shared with us and to be a resource for them in the most gracious and welcoming way. The other story I will share is I was on a a different campus um, that was a fairly homogenous campus with not much diversity um, amongst it. And we were working with, um, you know, a fairly conservative Christian student group who was very skeptical about interfaith work and was not very open to the conversation. And, you know, I was there with two of my colleagues. We were a Muslim, a Christian and a Jew. So make of that what you would like. (laughs) And partially what we did, you know, they, they still welcomed us to come to their group meeting. And we we were there. It was a beautiful service. It was one of the most moving um, religious experiences I had witnessed as a Muslim in a mostly Christian space. And it was very meaningful for me to be there. And I didn't say much in that space because I was there to learn and I was there to hear, you know, how they were grappling with their own sort of student identity on campus and how, you know, 
and it was, I think, incredibly difficult for them to have me in the room because they didn't know what my intentions were. And at the same time, I think that I, my hope is that the next time they encountered someone Muslim, hopefully they had a different conversation and took the step a little bit further down the road in terms of the experience that they had. You know, I, I don't want to miss, um, and I've talked to you about this before, but the example that your aunt Hilal, is that is that the right pronunciation? Yes, that's was correct. for you. And I, I ask you about this because I think this this brings us back to the beginning, which is there's many, many ways to be a Muslim woman. And you had one of the best role models for this in your own family, your dad's oldest sister, right? Yeah, that's right. My dad's oldest sister, uh, her name was Hilal. And she, um, you know, I, I wrote a piece about her a few years ago for Sojourners. And she really was the, the matriarch of our family. She was the anchor for, for our for my dad's um, siblings. And I remember one of my earliest sort of stories of being brought into the world of, of community and giving back was really through her experiences as a woman and as a leader in her community in Chennai, in the, in the southern Indian city of Chennai, where, you know, she would sort of go to, um, she had set up with her friends, set up this community organization that helped women who were escaping communal violence, but also escaping poverty um, from rural spaces in the state of Tamil Nadu and coming into the city of Chennai. And it was a transition house where they were able to stay, learn a vocation, and also their children got to attend free schools while they were figuring out how to, you know, build their life back together, how to be the breadwinners for their family and how to be independent, you know, single mothers who were supporting families of children. And it was really through watching my aunt um, interact in those spaces and be a leader in those spaces that I think was some of my earlier sparks of thinking about what it meant to be someone who gives back um, and who also, you know, uplifts the stories of others and um, makes sure that we keep talking and we keep building relationships and moving forward. You know what I've always wondered about what you observed about your aunt Hilal is whether you had to watch her make peace with the idea that not everybody in her community was going to be okay with the kind of work she was doing and the way that she was wearing her empowerment. You watched that, didn't you? Yeah, and and that also comes from a really deeply religious place. There's a there's a verse in the Quran that says, you know, if you have saved one life, is it is as if you have saved humanity. So it's it's to think about each life as as if you know that is the life that counts in that moment, and that life that you saved saves humanity. And that I think is the way that we can grapple with some of. Um, some of the reality that we're not going to be able to save everyone, but it's still important to save the people that we can and to be of service to those that we can. I have a good question here on Twitter, Janan. Um, Lisa asks, I'm a pastor of a small rural congregation near Rochester. While I'd love to engage in the dialogue that Reverend Hart Anderson uh, does, I'm wondering if your guest uh, could recommend a book or book series that I could work through with my congregation. Well, one of Ibu's books would be perfect for this, but maybe some others. 
Yeah, I would definitely recommend uh, Ibu's latest book, Of Many Faiths, which I think is uh, a really interesting way of thinking about religious diversity in the United States and um, and how to grapple with the different realities of that. Um, I would also say if she's particularly interested in, in learning about Muslims, there's a great little web series called The Secret Life of Muslims huh, that shows really? um, different stories. Yeah, it highlights different stories from across America, um, different you know ethnicities, different backgrounds. It's a really great uh, resource for people to look at and to learn about, you know, how Muslim Americans are are forging their own path. Janad, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being game to do this. And I hope to see you this summer in Chicago. All right. Well, we're ready to host you anytime. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. Janan Mohajir oversees strategy and development of the Interfaith Curriculum at Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago. And she's our latest guest in our Women of Faith series. You can find all of the shows with Sister Simone Campbell, Nadia Bowles-Weber, Sikuvu Hutchinson, Rebecca Watson, and also this conversation with Janan on the podcast. Search NPR News wherever you listen. just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at NPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.